Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. I want to first let you know that this is a brand new initiative. The Resilience Think Tank is an attempt for us to be in conversations about leadership, navigating change, and how we operationalize being resilient. Being resilient sounds great. Doing resilient presents some challenges. Shatan Turner is Senior Associate Counsel and Vice President Risk Management Disability Services at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. She manages the UPMC Intermediation Program and is an adjunct professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, is a wife, a mom of three, and has been quoted in the New York Times. Shatan, welcome. And I want to start off by asking you, when you are very stressed, how do you know? What are two warning signs you notice about yourself? Well, first, thanks for having me, um, Dr. Gilboa, just for the Instagram. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I'm stressed, I've, through time, have learned how to recognize it. So I start to feel warm in my face and I start to feel less settled. It's, it's a very physical experience for me. Have you learned to notice it early yes. on or does it take a while to get your attention? No, um, I'm, I'm pretty aware of it in real time um, because I've spent a decent amount of time like working on recognizing the signs so that I can try to implement some things to help me deal with it. Awesome. And we're going to talk about those things in a bit. Let me introduce everybody to Greg March. Greg is a founder and CEO of the media agency, Noble People, a member of a network of successful founder entrepreneurs and marketing executives called Beyond Hook Ventures, a husband, a father of two, and values a good afternoon nap. Greg, when you are very stressed, how do you know? What are a couple of warning signs that you notice about yourself? Um, well, thank you also, Dr. G, for the Instagram account. Um, I think I get lost in my head a lot. Like, I feel like I, I try to not live in there. Um, but when you find yourself rethinking a lot, imagining what might happen, getting angry about what did happen, and it's all kind of like swooshing around up there and you kind of lose present tense and reality, that's probably me being stressed and, 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 and for long periods of time. I think that's a really great way to put that, losing the present tense. I want to think about that. Okay. And lastly, let me please introduce you all to Matt Sheehan. He's currently the founder of a new home services startup called Exhale. He serves as advisor to Pangea Publishing, has been an active member of the Young Presidents Organization since 2013, is a husband and father of three. Matt, when you're very stressed, how do you know? What are a couple of your warning signs? Two telltale signs, but thanks, Dr. G, for uh, for having me in a great group. <clears throat> uh, my dad taught me years ago two things that have stamped my life. One, energy comes in multiple forms, and all great strengths taken to an extreme are weakness. So what I see during stressful times are two things. One is uh, kind of like Chaton, but it's not in my face. It's in my stomach. It's almost like when I was going on my first date in the eighth grade. It's not butterflies, it's a knot, and it stays there for days. And I can start to feel it even if I don't know why I'm stressed. It's taken me a long time to realize that. The other one is, and I work very hard at this, 
my routines, I blow up because I have some ultra focus in me and it goes too much where I forget about meditating, working out, reading. Those are the things I need the most when I'm stressed. Guess what I sacrifice first when I'm stressed are the things I need for clarity. So I try my hardest to keep the pillars in my life, uh, but it's pretty ironic that the things I need the most are the things I throw out first. <laughs> um, ironic, but also human nature. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Okay. I asked all three of these leaders here to ask them one really big question. And Greg, I'm going to start with you. What change is impacting your work right now? And how do you approach it when something like that happens? Um, so, so the big change that we have going on right now is, is a reorg uh, in my company with, with some of the managers and changing, you know, the nature of those reporting relationships and shifting who's responsible for what, including myself. Um, and everybody's kind of like riding a new bike a little bit and they're, they're, they're wobbling around and it's, it's, it, it's creates stress for me, but then also like my stress reflects on other people. And like, I'm aware of like how they're kind of managing that stress. Um, so that, that's the change. And, and I think that, you know, I think it's being always trying to be present and not kind of losing myself in my own head is, 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 is helpful for that, but also just driving to action. So like, if you're, if we're talking about something, like, I think you can, you can talk a lot of things to death and, and, and when you feel that happening, you just try and go, you know, what is the action that needs to be taken and like get everybody kind of aligned and committed to like whatever that action is, is make, take accountability for yourself or assign accountability to somebody else. Um, and then that, then you can get to the next thing. Um, and then if you feel like there are some like stresses that are like lingering over that, because I do think that that can go pretty harsh. You can have a separate conversation with that person and go, Hey, I, there was some tension around that thing. I'm glad we're going to do take that action we talked about, but how you doing? And then you can kind of separate those kind of conversations from, you know, deciding towards actions to like checking in on people it almost as, as you, you as di totally different conversations because often they get compounded into the same moment and you're probably doing both poorly. That makes total sense to me. You said something like it was obvious though, that isn't obvious to me, which is you said, get everybody aligned around an action as a leader. How do you do, like, I, knowing you and knowing most leaders, we know what action we want to be next most often, but how do you get everybody aligned, especially if they're in that riding a new bike, yeah. uncertainty, stress zone? You're not going to always necessarily get like a hundred percent, but align that like a reasonable play is like one of the way I kind of manage is I'm not going to very, very seldom. And I almost, I, and it could possibly be never. Do I, you know, let's say a management team of five or six people, do I stand in front of five or six people and say, go this way, even though the five of you think go that way. So like you look, you kind of feel out the room. If there's a tie, you get to be the tiebreaker or, or, or you assign somebody who's accountable to be the tiebreaker. But like if it's any, anything in the neighborhood of 60, 40 in either direction, Somebody's going to, you, 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 you make it somebody's responsibility to make the play. And we go, okay, we're aligned. At some point, somebody else is going to call the play. And I think, I think hopefully we've created a culture where like people are like, all right, well, I've weighed in. It's not my play to call. 
I'll be accountable for something else. I'll be making the call on something else and they'll get their turn. Um, so I, a line isn't, you know, six yeses. A line is like a line on this is the way we manage things. And I, and we accept that and, and everybody's been heard. That's a really important piece, I think, because you're saying you want everybody to be heard, but you also don't want to get stuck in talking it to death. And you talked about that even in your own stress navigation that you can get stuck in your head in what I wrote down with what ifs, although you didn't mm -hmm. put it quite that way. You said, you know, like what, how it might go or what might happen. Right. How do you get from, how do you first for yourself get from, and this is a phrase I like, get from what if to what is to get out of that, like, well, spinning forward. Like I think of it like skipping up a, a rock on a, on a lake, right? Stop skipping so many steps and just be like, well, what is right now is this, what's the right action to take? How do you convince yourself to get out of what if? I think you guys, I, I, I don't know if I 100% understand the question, but if I do, I think the answer might be, I think it begins with like a, a steady acknowledgement that fear is a bad thing. Like, like any, any decision made from fear, like you want to try and eliminate, I mean, there's practicalities and playing the odds and all that stuff. But if you're coming from a fear-driven place, I, I don't think that those decisions are particularly wise. So if you're playing the what if game, like if it's what if amazing, then I'll, I'll let that play out. But if it's like, what if horrible, you just go, okay, I'm coming from a place of fear. And, and either you can't get out of it, which means like stop making decisions and like hit pause, get away, get out of that place. And then, and then come back to the choice, which is, is, is often one of the options. Um, I just think it's acknowledging like, where is fear? fear of loss of security, fear of all these bad things that can happen. Like, I don't know, you just, I, I guess being aware of when you're playing from fear will, will put me into a better what is, because then you see things more clearly when you're not afraid. Can I jump in, Dr. G? Yeah, jump in, man. Do you mind? So as I hear Greg talk, it's, so, it's amazing to me how much work goes into transitions. So you talked about Rior, Greg, mm -hmm. and I've unfortunately had to do a bunch of them um, but as I hear you talk, I think about just transitions. There's a ton of work that goes into them so that you go from what if to we're committed and that gets to alignment. But uh, just to riff on that a little bit, I, I feel like I feel like it takes a lot of time and conversation and thought to get all the possibilities down to a decision. And it's never 100 percent sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, folks, if anybody hasn't gone through a reorg or a big transition, uh, it is it's a lot of work, a lot of thoughtful work and a lot of work amongst the team. And having done it, I've, I think I'm sweating right now, Greg, thinking about some of the reorgs I've done in the past. So I feel you, man. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, uh, and this, I, I've said this a lot, this might be horrible, but I've said it a lot. I'm like, whenever we get into like some hard decision territory, whether it's me or anybody else, well, often say is I have no expectation. We're going to get this right. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're going to get somewhere between like a 70 and 80 on the test. Like even like we're in the neighborhood of reasonable choices. We're going to get somewhere. It's going to go varying degrees of bad. We could spend all the time in the world optimizing to what will still not be an A plus, or we could make a call and then learn from that experience and then move faster and less, you know, less spiraling anyways. I think that is incredibly useful, Greg, to think about how, because, you know, perfect is the enemy of good, right? It's also the enemy of making, taking action. And so thinking about it as 
the goal here is to make reasonable decisions to get it most somewhat to mostly right. All right, Matt, you opened it up. You are, in, when I read your bio, you're the king of transition. You've prepared for and navigated through and recovered from so much change. So right now, what change is impacting you the most and how are you approaching it? So if you've looked at the uh, newspaper, watched the news in the last six months, you understand what's happening to uh, publicly traded companies uh, in their valuations. And that's leading down. Wait, you're, you're giving me too much credit. I've seen it, but that doesn't mean I understand it. <laughs> Okay, so um, <clears throat> uh, if you watch in the last six months, and if you watch a lot of the big publicly traded companies, specifically technology companies, um, what's happening is because of recessionary concerns, the world is pushing down on how the valuation of those companies, the stock price of those companies. What you see is the companies doing a lot of layoffs. Okay, that trickles down, and I'm far from being public. We're a small uh, Raleigh, North Carolina only business. Uh, but what's happening is as I'm raising money um, in a Atlanta in a hotel and uh, we're having investor conversations and that valuation pressure is coming all the way from the publicly traded companies all the way down to um, us little guys who someday will be really big. And that is a um, expectation change that I was not hoping for when I started the business two years ago. And so that what that manifests in is I believe our company is worth X and it will be worth a ridiculous amount down the road. I'm pretty sure of it. But this market is not supporting great valuations necessarily right now. So I talked, uh, your other question was, what do you do about it? I told my 12-year-old daughter, uh, Riley, who you've met before, uh, well, honey, the way this is going to work is I'm going to have to kiss a lot of frogs. And she goes, wait, wait, you do what at work? And I said, well, let me, let me explain. So I think that was that, not in your LinkedIn bio, Matt. No, I, I, yeah, I'll have to edit it after this. Uh, optionality is really important. And I do believe that what I'm looking for are like-minded people um, who see the future and not the short term. And sometimes you have to go through a lot of calls to find that person. So that change I wasn't expecting. Um, and there's a balance of stubbornness, <clears throat> stick to your guns, know what your value is, and then flexibility and compromise, which is, okay, the market is what the market is. Um, and let's try to find the, the best position for us uh, with uh, the right funding partner. So I'm um, spending a lot of time on the phone and on Zooms with investors these days, looking for the people who are see the future like I do. Matt, I'm going to guess that this change, like the change in the market's expectations of what's a reasonable company to invest in, changed your timeline for this project. Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, we started it basically in COVID and folks have said, what are you, are you not starting a company in COVID? And it was just the right time for me to start that business. Ironically, if you look across history, a lot of great companies either came out of recessions or showed their strength through recessions. So I'm not worried about that. And actually there's some trends that support us. Uh, so the timing to start the, the business wasn't uh, driven by that, um, how much to raise, how fast to go, how many people to hire. Those are very sensitive decisions right now because I would love to go hire 25 people. Uh, I can see the path. I just can't do that now given uh, our funding, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it. Just kissing a lot of frogs. And when you kiss those frogs, what do you do yourself to keep your motivation and your perseverance when you keep hearing no? Uh, I learned I'm five, six, and, uh, I was told for a long time that you're never going to play college hockey. I was told in the third grade, I wasn't a very good reader. So I've come to love the nose and they fire me up a little bit. And, uh, so there were a bit of fuel, 
Um, but you also have to not just love the nose. You have to see the nose as some truth in them. And so every one we get, and most uh, folks who have raised money know you go through a lot of no's before you get a yes. It is just part of the game. Uh, so I use it a little bit of fuel. And then I also try to, after the call, say, all right, what, why are they saying no? And, um, and, and what can we learn from that? We have a lot of yeses already. And we're just building up the, the group, if you will, to raise the money we need. Uh, but no's are part of the game. It's fuel for me, though. And they're part of everybody's life and all the changes that they're navigating. Um, and I'm going to use that to jump to Shatan because I know, Shatan, in your work, especially in disabilities advocacy and trying to create more resources for folks with disabilities, you are looking to find ways to turn experiences for people where they're used to hearing no into a yes. And that's something I've always admired about the work that you've done in every role I've ever seen you in. Uh, but I'd like to start off by asking you the same question. What change are you navigating that's affecting your work or your ability to do your work and how do you approach it? I, um, it's funny when you were asking Greg and Matt that question and they had their responses when Greg was talking, Greg, all I kept thinking about was sports. Maybe it's because, you know, they just had the playoffs, but like in football metaphors, like people are calling plays. And then when Matt was talking, it was reminding me of my, uh, college economics classes, which is, you know, how do you maximize output with scarce resources? And it, actually is my biggest point of change in life right now. I mean, we're all affected by the recession and I work in healthcare. And so the question is, how do you achieve more with less? If you've been, and I, you've probably more um, acquainted with this than maybe the public traded company valuations, but you know, there's a scarcity of nurses and- I intimately know that there's yes. a scarcity of nurses. <laughs> And so one part of my role in um, being vice president of risk management for UPMC, that is a constant question. How do we maximize patient safety with that reality, right? And so it really has caused us to consider doing things differently. And I'm not in the clinical space, but my role is supportive of that. And when you read my bio too, I actually have three separate jobs. So I'm vice president of disability services, vice president of risk management and senior associate counsel. And oh, they're actually three yeah. separate jobs, right? And so I've had- Would that this... be an example of doing more with less? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> because when my boss retired last year and I got promoted, they didn't hire a me. And so I retained everything that I was doing and expanded. So how I've been actually dealing with it primarily is exploring technology and figuring out how to maximize communication among my team members and with other lawyers who work here to try to better leverage my expertise in risk management and um, some of the other subject matters that I support and to provide that information to people who don't necessarily report to me, but can also help to communicate those things. So it makes it feel like there are more than one person assigned to the function. And one of the kind of tools I've had to do um, is to remind myself that I was put in this role for a reason. But yeah, when it was becoming particularly difficult a few months ago, what I did was um, 
just reinforce that. That idea of using technology to decrease your stress and to help navigate change, it's a little bit counterintuitive these days, actually. And Shatan, I need you to unmute for me. But the way that we focus on communicating with other people is actually where a lot of the rubber hits the road in terms of our own stress, what makes things go better or go worse. And Greg, you talked about that a lot when you were talking about how you can let everybody feel heard, but then align and move out of emotion into action. And that is absolutely the thing that I think I use the most when I'm trying to make a change with a group. And that you're talking more to us about the strategies that you use when you're trying to navigate a change yourself, right? You are the tip of the spear right now because you're fundraising for your organization, but you do have a lot of yeses from other people. And I want to ask everybody who's in the um, who's in the room to think now about questions that you want to put in for us, and you can just message the host. So, what I was wondering is. Matt, when you're trying to talk to the people that you've already said, hey, come along with me on this ride, we're going to navigate this change. And they said yes. And so now I'm, I'm trying to get everybody to think about yourself when you try and get your family to go along on a vacation or uh, your coworkers to join you in an initiative that you've planned or a group of investors to stick with you in money that they've made. How do you keep, and, and the image in my mind right now, Chapan, is not football. It's actually like a a dog sort of herding the sheep, right? You've gotten some sheep into your herd and you're trying to get everybody to keep moving in the same direction, even while you're also at the front and handling whatever obstacles come up. What are some of the ways that you approach people who have said yes and are now getting cold feet? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's really important when you get a yes in whatever it is, whether it's in life or business or, or, or family or whatever it is to keep the communication lines open and because any process can take a while. So we have investors who said yes two months ago and I said the process is going to take a long time. And so keeping them informed of next steps, our timing, where we are is really, really important. Um, I've made a mistake years back by getting a yes and going back to them six months later and just thinking they'd have the same energy and they didn't. And that taught me it's really important to keep feeding the engine as you, as you go. So folks, keep believing in your story. They hear the changes that you're making, whether it's on a personal front or business or on a hospital, wherever that may be. So I think it takes a lot of work to keep feeding the, the enthusiasm for what you're trying to build. And then it goes back to Greg's point, which is constant communication and alignment um, with the people who are close uh, or have already said yes or those who are on the fence. If, if I could say one thing about... Um the feeding the enthusiasm piece that Matt mentioned, because I think that's a huge point that can't be overstated. Nobody will follow you unless they believe in you. And so you have to figure out how to tap into what they're interested in. And one, our former general counsel was discussing he was mentioning me to somebody and talking about the UPMC intermediation program that you mentioned. And he said that it was my job to evangelize the program, 
because it was a newly created program. It had no history. There was no predecessor. There's still nothing comparable in the industry. And so really we were asking people to have the courage to do something different and to participate in a different kind of conversation that they had no basis for. And the only way, and when he said it, I was like, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm evangelizing the program, getting people to believe in me, trust me enough that they will do this program. And it sounds like that's what Matt's doing when he's trying to raise money. And Greg, you're doing the same thing when you're trying to get everybody to deal with a management shakeup. You're, you're always in marketing as a leader. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, and I have to, you know, I'm a work in progress too. I think uh, what I'm trying to be better at is just constantly bringing it back to the mission. So there is some, there is some kind of objective, uh, particularly with employees. This might be different with investors, but for me, like with employees, is like there, there is a mission that is bigger than making money, and and we are, and and that mission is has got value. Um, and, and everything that we do should, should somehow align with it. And, and at every point in time, how can you get people excited about it? Um, so that's one of the things I'm working on doing better. Um, but I, I do believe in it. Let, let me, let me, let me jump in if I can. So I think, I think mission is so, so critically important, Greg, and we try to do it, um, a lot with companies. First thing we did is Excel wrote our, uh, mission values and vision statement. Um, ironically, <clears throat> last year, Dr. G helped the family and I write, uh, and, and by the way, Dr. G, we're still tweaking it, and so we want it to be generational, but um, we believe in the mission so much that we wanted to get it for the family, and so I very much believe that organisms or organizations of any type, um, if you can rest or have a nucleus. And it guides your decision-making when you don't know what to do. Specifically in the tough times, so I, I hear you, Matt, right on. And it also unlocks other people's creativity. If you're always like, ultimately, you're not going to have all the answers. And you're like, well, there's, I'm going to be really clear about what out there is, what, 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 where we're trying to get to. And what you'll find, or what I've found, is that sometimes from an unexpected place, some unexpected idea, you know, when you're talking about doing more with less, you're going to get a 10x result that you would have never come up with yourself if you're clear about something exciting that everybody's reaching to. Um, and then once you start seeing results like that, then it becomes easy to be like, oh, wow, this, is, this, this works, let's keep doing it. I think Greg's right. It's, you have to crystallize the objective so that everybody understands what it is. And then to your point, people on the team then feel comfortable making suggestions about how to get there because they understand the objective. Where it's less productive, I think, and more frustrating for team members is when the leader doesn't really know what the objective is or doesn't crystallize it for them. And so then they're not comfortable making ideas and contributions. And then it's more stressful for the leader because they're the only person who has the clarity. Travis in the chat pointed out, um, we rise and fall on communication. It's not just knowing what we're doing or having the good ideas, but being able to communicate them. And Chris, I appreciated your point. He said uh, to what Matt was saying about making sure investors are still warm and not just assuming that because we brought them on board six months ago, they still believe. He said, new employees are like new investors. We think once we've hired somebody and we're providing their paycheck that they must, they must by definition be on board, but that they also need 
us to keep the that fire warm, keep feeding. You know, if, if we've done a good job, if if the mission is the kindling, we got to keep feeding that bonfire. We had a really good question, and Shatan, I'm going to throw it to you first. Bruce wanted to know, in terms of helping people navigate change, cross generational communication can be a real challenge. And in healthcare, you might have working at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center right now five generations of people working there. So how do you approach that? Takes a lot of work and creativity, right? And to Greg's point, you can't assume that you have all the answers. And so on my team in particular, we have probably at least three generations working, maybe four, depending on where their ages are. And so we've asked people how they like to receive information and have tried to deliver in those ways. So recently we started using the internal social media platform to amplify some of our risk management objectives and tips that people can do to try to reach some of the, um, you know, Gen Y and millennial nurses who are more comfortable with that platform. We know we're not going to hit some of our more seasoned nurses that way. We, um, communicate via email we also can but we recognize because the other thing you don't um you didn't mention in your question but you're aware is in addition to the professional workers we have we also have our environmental services people and folks that don't even have access to a computer on a regular basis right so it involves using traditional communication like showing up pressing the flesh and sharing the message in person, even in this remote world. And also it involves using different types of technology to reach different user groups. And so it um, is definitely been a recent exercise in creativity and kind of communication gymnastics, if you will, but we found it to be effective. Okay, Greg, I wanna ask you this question that came in because you've done this. Uh, someone wants to know, do you ever consider walking away or going in a different direction okay. if you find you're needing too much energy to get the results you need? So when you decided to found your own company, was what made you decide either in the positive, like now it's time to jump to yeah. go do something else or whether it was, you know, I'm putting in all this energy here and I'm not getting to what I think I need to get to. What pushed you to finally make that call? Just the, the only thing that's throwing me is like, I don't know if energy is my, okay. it's like the meter with which I walk away from something. Like if it, you know, I guess it, I could put a lot of energy towards something if I'm excited about it. And if it requires even more energy, I, it, it's not a problem because I'm excited about it. I think it's the excitement <laughs> that will reveal then that, because you mentioned before, I like to take naps. If I want to take naps, it's not because I don't have energy. It's that I'm not excited about what it is that I'm doing. It's, yeah, am I, am I excited about the thing? If I'm excited about the thing, I find ways to do the thing with which I am excited about. If I'm not excited about the thing, if you want me to do it for six minutes, I'm going to like probably not like, you know, that then you just then you then you are enforcing a discipline on yourself of like, I've got to be a person in the world. And even though I'm not excited about it, I have to fulfill my obligations as like a partner, person, leader, whatever. But I try and bend my life so that that feels difficult infrequently as much as possible. That makes sense to me. 
Matt, I'm gonna to come to you with our last question of this Q&A segment. And that is this, uh, we talked a lot about mission and Ian, um, Ian asked a really good question in the chat that Ian, I'm gonna summarize rather than read. He's really asking about getting that alignment, getting everybody looking at something in the same way. We talked about culture. It's a great, and you're at the beginning of a project. So you might be thinking a lot about how you build culture in your new endeavor, but a lot of us are already in a situation in which we wanna be effective leaders. How do you build the culture airplane while you're flying? It comes back to what Greg said before. Before we had a name of the business, we have a one pager that we call the one pager and it is our mission. It's our four values and that's our vision. And we worked super hard at it so that it would not change. And we repeat it all the time. It's, it's in every team meeting we have, which is weekly and monthly. So repetition is, um, is a really, really important one. And then we have spent time. Culture uh, can change when you bring new employees in. Uh, if you don't explain to them the culture that you aspire to and cultural culture is aspirational as much as it is just straight evidence within the organization. And so I spend the first day or two with every employee who comes in. Uh, we only have 12 right now, but my plan is to continue to do that. Um, and I think that's the only way to truly un help everybody steer in the right direction. Of course, we have a lot of diversity, um, but we want folks, we only hire folks who fit our values. Um, if you don't fit our values in, in interview process, you won't get in. Uh, and if you do, then generally, I believe it will take care of itself. So I, I think you have to have a structure that supports it, a lot of repetition. You have to make sure that you, um, when you onboard folks, um, they see the vision that you're trying to build and, and those will help a lot. Does that help? It does. And it helps a lot, I think, for leaders who are definitely actually at the top of their org structure. Shatan, you are a leader who is not at the very top of the UPMC org structure. And so I wondered if you might talk about trying to impact or slowly shift or affect culture in an organization that's already very large and very well established. A lot to unpack there because, um, as you know, we're large because of a series of acquisitions and some of them are in the not so distant past. And so the notion that we have a monolith culture throughout all of our facilities and all of our business lines is um, not deeply true. Flawed. Yeah. It's deeply flawed. <laughs> However, my part of my job, one of the jobs, right? The disability services piece is to create a culture where people with disabilities feel welcome at UPMC and receive equal access to our services. And so I'll narrow my answer to just that piece because that's something over which I have control. And I'm not at the highest point of our org truck structure generally, but I'm the person who's responsible for that. And so um, it's interesting because reaching clinical people is different than reaching like our facilities and construction people. And those are really the spaces we focus on because one is about physical structures, right? And kind of how do you make facilities accessible for people? And then the other is in the care space. How do you make people feel welcome? And it's not always intuitive, even to our most esteemed and educated physicians, right? Because the obligation is to reasonably accommodate people and what that looks like is very individualized. And when, and not to go off on a tangent, but New York Times did a um, 
article last fall where physicians were surveyed and their instinct, at least the ones that were surveyed, was to not treat people with disabilities because they thought it was too hard. So I'm Doctors might be the worst. Well, they, right. They, they, they said it out loud. Yeah. And so recognizing that we have packaged the message differently for our physicians than we have for our nurses. We've created ways to get the, um, make it easier for people. Cause as you know, the electronic health record is its own thing. And it was not created by people who actually wanted to use it. And um, I actually wish I had done it when I was in college and came up with a bad product because I think that's what people did. But anyway, um, (laughs) so we've been modifying it to ensure that when people register, we capture their disability type and what they need. Because since the records built on the episode of care and not on the person, it wasn't intuitive, right? So that's one way. And then it gets translated into a task so that the nurses can execute it. And then we've kind of belt and suspenders it with policies and also information on our um, infonet. And then I have a great team that are the perfect evangelists for this work. And so they go out and they talk to people, lots of people all the time and make sure that when they think about accommodations instead of thinking about papers and materials, they think about them. And so they personalize it. And that's really what we've done to try to influence the culture and make it a more welcoming place. And I'm pleased with where we're going. We're not there yet, but um, little by little, we're making a difference. Okay. So I've heard, and I hope you all have too, some amazing strategies. I want to highlight just one from each of our panelists, but you'll get an email from me in the next week or so listing more that I heard. And I'll be really interested to hear what everyone else took from this. Greg, you talked about something that I thought was really incredibly useful when you said you can move from discussion to action and still pull out people one at a time or pick an individual that you think is struggling with that move and separate out moving forward with action from acknowledging their emotion, that you don't have to move past the emotion in order to move to action. And you don't have to stay in conversation forever, that you can, as a leader, move the group forward, but also notice someone who's having a hard time and pick them out and address that and support them separately. Matt, something that you talked about was when you get a no, gaining from that, both the truth of it, you know, what in there was useful, if painful to hear that you could actually make a change in how you explain it or what you're actually doing or address the problem, but also find the motivation in the no, that every no has something to teach you, but also little, use the word fuel, a little bit of fuel. And I think that's really important. And Shatan, just one of the gems that you dropped was you asked people how they wanted to be approached, the method of communication that works best for them, and then you tried to deliver that. Doesn't mean people always tell us their truth. They might say, oh, email, but then fail to read and respond to their emails. But you've done some due diligence and you've proven that you're trustworthy by both caring enough to ask and then doing your best to deliver in the way that they ask you to deliver. And there are some strategies there that we can each draw out. But the main theme that I heard through this whole conversation today is about excitement. The excitement that we have to have for our mission and the clarity around that. And then the excitement that we have to evangelize. And it's a great word. Shatana, it's not one I would have come up with and I appreciate it. Evangelize out and 
to keep building that fire in our employees, the way Greg explained, and in investors, and really anybody that we want to, that we need or want to take along on the ride that we're on. This conversation has been really worthwhile. One of the things that we started off talking about, though, was stress. And Shatan, you mentioned that feeling of being unsettled or getting kind of warm. And, and Matt, you talked about how you feel that in the pit of your stomach. And Greg, you talked about getting a little bit lost in your head sometimes. So I want to end our time together by asking you each a question that is guaranteed to be a stress buster. And that is, what's something that has delighted you recently? Like really taking you out of that unpleasant feeling and gotten you to a great place that improves your outlook or just really lightens your mood. So. Shatan, I want to start with you. Is there something that's delighted you recently? Yeah, so I am lucky that I hit the sibling lottery and um, my brother and sister are awesome. My sister recently went to this um, retreat in Arizona at this place. Well, we won't use the place because we don't have the rights to the name. Um, but anyway, this is what one of my team members called my emotional support water bottle. So <laughs> my sister did all of this work there to like try to improve her energy, lower stress and everything. And when she gave this to me for Christmas, she said it has special powers. And so I've started to like, just rub it. <laughs> like, don't judge me. <laughs> When, I, when it's stressful at work and it works. So if the genie comes out, we all want to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> all right, Greg, how about you? Um, I try and I, I heard someone else give a speech about it and I'm not going to like encompass it well, but, but the end of the speech was to kind of like appreciate kind of very uh, mundane, boring moments in your home with your family. Cause they're really great. Like, even if they're doing nothing, and to kind of take a look around and take stock of that moment. Um, so that. Nice. That's pretty terrific. Okay, Matt, how about you? Uh, you know, I try, I've learned over time to try to uh, carry some uh, bright moments with me, even when the, when the stuff gets tough. Um, the other day, we were, I was at uh, my youngest uh, baseball tryout, and a uh, coach leaned over to me and said, man, Grady has a great baseball IQ. And that was three days ago, and that has not left me. And and so I have a bunch of those. I think I have a little suitcase of them, you know, invisible that I always take with. And uh, that was one that I, I smile now just thinking about it. So um, that was one that really delighted me the other day. And for me, this week, I would say that um, I like a good, not suitable for work laugh. Like laugh so hard people in the next room say, hey, what's happening? And for me, it is invariably this website called damn you autocorrect where people post and i can see some people putting it in their url right now where people post screenshots of accidental text and there's a really amazing one greg about a woman whose mom meant to take say she took a nap but didn't uh she replaced the p with an l and it went downhill from there Thanks everybody for joining us today. I'm so delighted you're here. You'll get a follow-up about this and I hope that you'll join us for three more incredible, aspirational, inspirational leaders on February 28th. Have a great day, everyone.